0: Good morning, church. If I haven't had the chance to meet you, my name is Joe, and I'm one of the pastors here, and I'm sure you're all eager and and excited to uh, learn what it is that we're preaching on today after Alyssa's introduction. We'll get to that in a second. Uh, Today starts a long tradition uh, called Advent. Now, Advent is a a Latin word that means arrival, and uh, Advent, uh, seasons of Advent, is referring to waiting for something to arrive or for someone's arrival. So in the church, Advent is the four Sundays leading up to Christmas Eve and Christmas. And it's used to prepare us for the birth of Jesus because, here's the thing, the early church, and I think us even still today, didn't view the birth of Jesus as just another birth and a, a child coming into the world, but, but as an arrival, that God had arrived on the scene, that God came and dwelt amongst us in person. Now, to be honest, for me growing up, Advent was nothing more than a countdown to Christmas, so each week when one of the four candles was lit, I knew I was one day closer to opening presents. Um, And as fun as that was, that's not the purpose of Advent. The purpose of Advent isn't to count down to the celebration of Christmas. It's, It's meant to help us relive what it felt like to wait for God to show up. You see, Jesus came as the long-awaited Messiah to a world broken and hurting and to people who had struggled through their lives and struggled in so many different ways and experienced all different kinds of pain. And, And he came to this people who, generation after generation, was waiting for God to show up. And that's what Advent was all about. It was waiting for God to finally show up and do something. And I'm sure that many of you can relate to that kind of feeling. Waiting for God to finally do something. And so that's what we're going to do this year. Instead of focusing on the Christmas story um, during Advent, we're going to focus on the people in the Old Testament, people who longed for God to finally do something in their lives in the midst of often difficult and even dangerous situations, often in situations that would be considered PG-13, hence the warning. (laughs) So to do that, we're going to look at four women in the Old Testament, uh, and these four women are actually tied rather intricately to the Christmas story. So you can find one of the Christmas stories in one of the Gospels uh, in the Gospel of Matthew, the first book in the New Testament. But before you get to the Christmas story, you need to read through what I like to call the opening credits. And it's a long list of these people in the line of Jesus' family, these fathers and sons who who eventually led to making jesus story possible what we call a genealogy so here's the genealogy of jesus very much like opening credits I feel like there should be some music playing or something and i'm going to read all of this because i honestly couldn't pronounce all of their names very well um, uh, so that's a confession. But you see here, all family after family. Father who, became, who gave birth to, who had a son, who eventually became a father. And in typical ancient culture, it's list of mostly men. Because women weren't always viewed as entirely uh, important in the story. And, and so this is a list of men. But not entirely a list of men. Because nestled into this genealogy are four women. Tamar is the first and then Rahab, and then Ruth, and then the wife of Uriah, or as she's known by people who are friends with her, Bathsheba. So over the next four weeks, we're gonna look at these four women, and then in, uh, uh, as we approach Christmas Eve, we'll look at the, uh, the fifth one, uh, mother, the fifth mother of Jesus, the, the, the real mother of Jesus, Mary. So we're going to start this week with the person of Tamar. And and what I want to do is I want us to to sort of relive in a world where uh, there is need for a Messiah. A world that is broken and a world that is messy and dark and difficult. So that we're going to begin this sort of Advent struggle with the person of Tamar. Now before we do... Give credit where credit is due. A few years ago, Sue Fletcher, who's here, uh, preached a sermon on Tamar here, and I got a copy of that sermon. Uh, Paul had on file, and, and I'm pulling, f- uh, and it's informing this sermon quite a bit. Um, and but also, if you're interested in reading fictional uh, account of Tamar and these other women, Francine Rivers has a, a book called Lineage of Grace. I haven't read it, but some people who I respect said that it was good. It's a sort of a take on these four women who are listed in the genealogy and their story. Um, So to do that, we're going to look at Tamar. She goes all the way back to the book of Genesis, the first book in the Bible. And so we're going all the way near the beginning, chapter 38. So if you have your Bibles, go to Genesis chapter 38. And while you do that, let me give you a little bit of context. Tamar's story, this woman listed in the genealogy, is in the midst of Judah's story. And if you don't know who Judah is, Judah is the brother of Joseph, brother of Joseph which is um, actually kind of funny if you think about it, because Tamar um, might be one of the least known characters in the Old Testament, but we all know who Joseph is. I'm not talking about me, I'm talking about the biblical character. We all know who Joseph is. Um, In fact, he's very popular. Um, uh, Movies and children's books and plays have been made about Joseph because the story of Joseph, which takes up most of the end of Genesis, is a really epic story. Do, 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 do most of us know that story? Maybe we remember it. He, he's sold by his brothers. He lives and ends up in Egypt. He becomes in charge of all Egypt. He spends some time in prison during some of that. I mean, it's a, it's, a, it's a pretty, it's an epic story of Joseph. Now here's the thing with Joseph. Joseph is very Christ-like. In the Old Testament, there's these characters that sort of point to Christ. They, they exhibit some of the character of the person of Christ. And Joseph is one of these characters. He was, he does what's right even when it cost him. Um, He works hard at everything he does, even when it's just work in a prison. He loves his family, even though they first try to kill him and then decide to sell him into slavery. He still forgives them. He still cares for them. He's this really great character. And while in many ways he's this character who looks a lot like Jesus, he's not in the line of Jesus. Jesus didn't come from Joseph's ancestors. Jesus came through Judah and Tamar, which is epic in its own way and interesting in its own way, but entirely unlikely. Now Judah is Joseph's older brother and when Joseph's brothers, if you know the story, if you don't, there's some great movies I recommend watching. Uh, There's also a really good book on the the topic. Um, When Joseph's brothers, they get so fed up with Joseph, they're gonna kill him. Judah is the one who says, don't kill him, let's sell him. <laughs> then at least we get some money. Okay, so, so Judah, so if Joseph is a lot like a picture of Christ, Judah would be kinda like Judas. He's the one who sells Joseph out. Okay, that's what we know about Judah at this point, right? Not a super great dude. And this is where Judah's story begins. After this incident with Joseph and selling him into slavery, human trafficking, he decides to leave his family. And he goes and settles into a new land, and he marries, and he has a family. He has three sons. And we're gonna pick up the story where Tamar's introduced. It's verse six. Judah's firstborn is gonna get married. So starting with verse six, it says this. Judah got a wife for Ur. Now, got a wife for her, that's important. She didn't have a choice in the matter. It was a transaction between families, right? This is how it worked uh, back then and and even in still some cultures today. Judah got a wife for her, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. So there we go, Tamar, one of the names in the genealogy. And this is where things begin to get interesting. Now, before we go any further, I need you to understand something about Tamar's story. Tamar's story is difficult. It's, um, I don't watch soap operas, but it's a lot like a soap opera. It's raw, and the more you dig into it, the more complicated it becomes, and often even more painful. So I want us to approach Tamar's story from a particular perspective. Because there's often two perspectives to a story. And, and, and so you can look at a story and just take it and oversimplify it, like the type of story you would share in the midst of gossip, or you can really sit down with someone and understand their perspective and understand the complexities of the story. So just give you an example. Here would be Tamar's story if you were hearing it at the water cooler amidst gossip. All right, so now you guys are all just people I work with and I wanna tell you about this girl, Tamar, that you know. You know Tamar, right? She's married to one of Judah's sons, his firstborn. Well, she was until he died. And so she got passed down to his other son who also died. Now, I don't know what she's doing but her husband's her husband's keep in and up dead but that's not the worst of it you will not believe what's happened to Tamar she's become a prostitute and and it's worse than that she's a prostitute who slept with her own father-in-law oh it gets even worse She's a prostitute who slept with her father in law and now she's pregnant with her father in law's twins. Can't make this stuff up. Imagine if you heard of Tamar in that kind of context. What might you think of her? Is she the type of person you'd want to be friends with? When her twins grow up, would you bring your kids over to her house for a play date? Now, if you've read the story of Tamar, this is probably the version you remember. When I read it, the first reading, I said, Oh, my days, what is going on here? And that's this part I remember. But there's another way to encounter someone's story. Not the oversimplified, easy version, but the version that you sit down and you really understand it from their perspective. Let me explain. I used to uh, uh, love to watch the show uh, Law and Order Special Victims Unit. watch that I'm not recommending it by the way I used to like to watch it and the thing with the special victims unit is they deal with special victims they deal with the most vulnerable in society they deal with often disgusting cases that involve women children and sometimes the elderly the, the, the truly vulnerable in society and I used to watch it and I used to watch it because it was just stories you know this stuff didn't actually happen in life it was just interesting crime stories until I became a pastor And when I became a pastor, something happened. Within the first year of becoming a pastor, people would begin to come and sit down at my office. Didn't quite look like this, but something similar. And I couldn't believe the stories people would tell me. There's your stories of abuse and of neglect and of dysfunction mistakes they've made, mistakes that have been made against them. And I realized something, that stories like in the Special Victims Unit aren't always just stories, they're real life sometimes. And they're real people who've experienced just things that you just, and they sit here and they just, they share their stories Tamar is one of these stories. And we look at it from a simplified perspective where we can sit down and hear it from her perspective. Hear how it came about that she ended up making these strange decisions in her life. And that's what I want to do because even though her story happened thousands of years ago and in ways that often doesn't make sense to us because of our Western culture, this is still stories that are happening. This, her story is still our story. There are people who have experienced the same frustration and the same difficulty and the same vulnerability, the same pain, the same disappointment, the same sense of abuse. And so we're going to sit down with Tamar and hear her story. Next verse says this, Tamar is given to Judah's son, Ur, and we learn about her new husband. But Ur, Judas firstborn, was wicked in the Lord's sight, so the Lord put him to death. Well, there you go. Um, This guy is so wicked that uh, he gets put to death by God. And I'm not going to get into the theology of God putting someone to death other than to say it's not as simple as it reads, Uh, so don't jump to conclusions, but there's a a point being made in this particular story. Think about it. In this overarching story of Joseph and Judah and, and all of the brothers, there's all kinds of terrible things that are done. They almost kill Joseph. They sell him into slavery. Judah is not a very super great guy. But all of these people get to live. And then you meet this guy by the name of Ur, which is an interesting name. You meet Ur, and we are not told what he does, almost to suggest that what he did was too terrible to name. So terrible that he's given the death penalty by God. Now, up to this point in Scripture, the only time that God has sort of given the death penalty, intervened, and brought death to someone was because of really disgusting, terrible sins. So Ur is right up there with the worst of the worst. And friends, that is Tamar's husband. And what's worse, she had no choice in the matter. So, we sit down with her maybe you're a pastor maybe you're her friend maybe you're in our small group and you hear of her husband er can you imagine the stories she would tell being married to someone like that what that must have been like probably shouldn't imagine it it'd be too painful now with the passing of her you might think there's a sense of hope because he was clearly so terribly wicked Um, But in the ancient world, and and still in some cultures today, when a woman was given a marriage, she was given more than just to the husband, but to sort of the husband's family. And and women had no way to take care of themselves without family, without a husband, and without a son. They were destined to struggle. So in a culture, it became customary and appropriate for a widow to be passed down uh, to the next son in the line. And this happened during the times of Jesus. You can read about it in some discussions he had with the Sadducees. And it happens in some cultures still today. Um, so per custom, Tamar ends up with Ur's youngest brother. That's the next verse where the story picks up. Then Judah said to Onan, sleep with your brother's wife and fulfill your duty to her as a brother-in-law to raise up offspring for your brother. Okay, so this is how it would work. The younger brother would be uh, get her pregnant and in turn give her a child and that child, if it was a boy, would inherit Ur's inheritance, her, his brother's family inheritance which means if she had a child through the younger brother the child wouldn't be his it would be considered er even though er was dead so the child would get er's heir would be er's heir and get his inheritance it's hard to say <laughs> but you get the idea and an inheritance was everything Because because it meant that you got the land and and you got the cattle, and and, and the fourthborn would get double portions, so the cattle and the fields and the equipment, basically the ability to live if Ur's brother would give uh, her an heir. But the only way she would get the inheritance is if she had a son. Otherwise, Ur's inheritance would go to the younger brother. And so Ur's younger brother plots against her, verse 9. But Onan knew that the child would not be his, so whenever he slept with his brother's wife, he spilled his semen on the ground to keep from providing offspring for his brother. Well, that might be the most awkward verse in the entire Bible. (laughs) And I read it out loud. And while it is God's word, which means it's God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, I still feel I should apologize. (laughs) It's certainly not the verse you expected to hear on the first Sunday in Advent, so Merry (laughs) Christmas, everyone. But this is Tamar's story. Difficult that it is. The same Tamar that's listed in the genealogy moments before the story of Jesus' birth. So first, her husband is terrible. Second, that terrible husband dies. And third, her husband's brother uses her, but not in a way that would ever produce her the chance at an inheritance, at having a life. And this God does not like. So verse 10, what he did was wicked in the Lord's sight, So the Lord put him to death also. So once again, she's set free from her oppressor. But once again, she's left out in the cold with no prospects. So, imagine, a year ago, maybe two years ago, you sat down with Tamar and she told you about her husband, how terrible he was and how he had just passed away. And uh, there was a glimmer of hope that maybe the next guy would work out, that it would be okay. But here you are a year, maybe two, time has passed, and she tells you the story of another husband or a husband-like person, not even someone she could call a husband, a guy who uses her, and then he dies too. And as you hear the story and you have this conversation, you're just hoping things will get better. Dare we go on? Verse 11, Judah then said to his daughter-in-law, Tamar, live as a widow in your father's household until my son Selah grows up. In other words, he says, I'll give you my third son, but he needs to grow up first, which sounds nice, but that's not actually what his plans are. You learn in the next verse what Judah's plans are actually going to be. Verse 12, he says, for he thought to himself, and this is why he sends her away, he may die too, just like his brothers and this is subtle um so let me explain what's going on here judah looks at the death of his first and second sons his first two sons and he sees a common denominator now we know what that common denominator is don't we reread we the story we know what it is they were both terribly wicked people right that T- tamar had to live with they're terribly wicked people that's the common denominator but in typical biased father-in-law fashion he sees their story and he sees a different common denominator doesn't he he looks at the story and he says oh My first two sons died with Tamar, so I'm not going to let my third son anywhere close to her. She's used, she's abused, she's discarded, and then she's blamed for it. Now, if you don't understand why this story is still relevant today, then you either live a very sheltered life, or you're not listening well enough. So imagine once again, we sit down with Tamar. She's been sent home to her father's house, and everyone knows, and everyone's blaming, and everyone's looking at her as the cause of all of these problems. And you you hear her story, and I don't know if you've ever been here before, but you hear her story, and you think to yourself, that's terrible, but it's clearly not your fault. And yet, you can't convince her of that. Have you ever, have you ever been in a conversation like that? <coughs> where, I have. Where their life is really dysfunctional, and it's broken, and there's all kinds of problems, but it's clearly not entirely their fault. Maybe they've made some bad decisions, but it's not entirely their fault. There's, there's more going on, and there's just no way to convince them that they're not to blame. Now, when you begin to bear the blame, for the the terrible things that happen to you, um, it it perpetuates the problem, and and it leads us to make really dangerous decisions. So the rest of the story of Tamar and Judah is is even more complicated and dramatic than so far, and I'll let you read it for yourself. I'll just give you the abridged version. Here's what happens. Judah's wife dies, so now Judah's available, and Judah plans a trip to a feast. And Tamar decides to take action. This is interesting because at this point, everything that's happened in Tamar's life was because it happened to her, no say in the matter. At this point, she decides. This is her first decision recorded in her story. She takes action. You can't blame her that it wasn't that super great decision. If you think so, you know it just, it's her first decision. She's taking action, she's taking control. She's gonna find a way to have an heir. And so she dresses up and she puts a veil on And she goes, hangs out by the road that she knows Judah's going to pass. Now, she must know something about Judah that we don't know. She must know that Judah's the type of guy that's going to give in to that. Because it's kind of ironic, during this, probably around this exact same time, you've got Judah's brother, Joseph, and he's being tempted in all kinds of ways, upon wife and et cetera. But he does what's right in all of those difficult situations, even when it requires him to end up in prison. But Judah, he's not that type of guy, So she dresses up she puts a veil on so he can't see her and he sees her he likes what he sees he takes her and she becomes pregnant and then he goes on with his life like nothing ever happened no big deal until later now remember he has no idea that it's his daughter-in-law right but he catches word that his daughter-in-law has been sleeping around and he's not happy verse 24. About three months later, after he had been with her, uh, Judah was told that your daughter-in-law, Tamar, is guilty of prostitution, and, she, and as a result, she's now pregnant. So he, he hears the gossip, right? Through the grapevine, she's been, she's been acting like a prostitute, and now she's pregnant. And, but he doesn't realize that it was with him, right? He doesn't realize that. So this is what he says. Judah said, bring her out and have her burned to death. At the time, stoning was the appropriate death for someone caught in this act, but he goes as far as to say, be burned to death. So Tamar is used, she's abused, she's discarded, then she's blamed for it, and then she's tempted to be punished for the things in which all of these other things led to her decision. He wants to burn her. Okay, at this point, you're probably thinking, Joe, couldn't we have just looked at Joseph's story? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> like her story's too much and it is and if it doesn't just make you angry then I don't know what will this is the epitome of injustice and double standards he wants to put her to death for the sin of adultery not really it was committed with him it's, it's just disgusting but her story isn't over she sends word to Judah and, and, and explains to him uh, through a series of events that it was her with him on the road that she's now in trouble for and his double standard is uncovered and so in verse 26 we see the moral of this story okay this is this is the verse to remember he says judah recognized them and said she is more righteous than i she is more righteous than i can i just say this that if you read this story and you don't walk away with the same conclusion you've missed the point if you don't walk away and say, wow, Tamar is more righteous than Judah, then you've missed the whole point of the story because at the end of this story, Judah says she is more righteous than I. And here's the thing with Judah, later on in the book of Genesis, he actually becomes a pretty good dude. And so there seemed to be some sort of turning point in his life and some would suggest that it's this one. He becomes convicted when his double standards is revealed and he realizes that what he had done and always had been doing was wrong. And, he, and listen to the transition on how he looks at Tamar. At one point, just a few verses before he refers to her as a prostitute worthy of being burned to death and a few verses later he says she is righteous that transition is the point of this story in fact if you find yourself in a conversation with someone like Tamar and you're not able to make that kind of transition to go from looking at that person as someone who's made bad decisions, as someone who's, who's really messed up, to someone who is potentially, has the potential of being righteous, as someone who is beautiful. If you can't see underneath all of their circumstances, all of their decisions, all of their mistakes, all of the mess in their life, that underneath all of that is a person who is a beautiful person in God's eyes, then there's probably very little you'll be able to do to help that person. Because here's the thing. I almost guarantee it I can't guarantee it, but it's very likely that if you sit down with someone like Tamar and you can't believe that underneath it all that they are a beautiful person worthy of God's love. Friends, I promise you, she's not thinking that. And probably won't ever come to terms with that. Not not until someone helps her, not until someone shows her. See, this is the point of this story. This is why she was included in the genealogy in Matthew. As soon as she was placed in the genealogy of Matthew, she was given a new place in the story. Because think about it. Mary, Joseph, and little baby Jesus would never refer to Tamar as a prostitute. You know how they referred to her as? Grandma. I mean, it's like great, 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 grandma. But it And this is the whole point of the story. Right at the beginning of the gospel, the story of the, of the Son of God coming and living amongst us is Tamar listed amongst all of these men, not, not needing to be listed. that it wasn't culturally relevant to me. She was listed on purpose because that is what Jesus came to do. He takes people who often experience great dishonor and find great difficulty and he shows compassion enough to place them in a place of honor. Opening credits. And the same is true for you. I hope that you'll hear this, and I know that this is the most difficult thing to convince anyone. If they don't believe they're worth it, if they don't believe they're anything more than the labels that have been placed on them, it's almost impossible to convince them, but I hope you'll hear me. You are worth more than the labels the world puts on you. You are worth more than the labels that come out of the gossip that is said about you, regardless of what you've done. And just like Tamar, you are someone's daughter, son, someone's father, someone's mother. And even if all of those relationships have failed you at some point in your life, the point of the Christmas story is that Jesus came to usher in a new family, one where God is the head, where all are welcome, and where they can live respected as people and children of God. See, the story of Christmas is far more than just a story of a little baby being born. Jesus came in to usher in a new family. Kind of family. And when Tamar was included in the genealogy, something happened. You could no longer separate the story of Christmas from her complicated, awkward, messy story, which is another way of saying you cannot separate the fact that Jesus came to live amongst us from your complicated, messy, and dare I say, even at times, awkward stories. So every Christmas, I feel like we want to just have the perfect Christmas where everything is good. The problem is, is that uh, the world is not always so kind. And that we do have dysfunction in our families and in our lives, and you can't always run away from it. But that's what the Christmas story is all about. The God of the universe loved people like Tamar, people like you, that he decided that he would come and move into the neighborhood, live amongst us, die for us, and ultimately save us. And this is the best part. Jesus, who was born a child, grew into a man who became friends with people like Tamar. In fact, in John 4, Jesus sat down with a woman like Tamar. It wasn't in his office. Um, He didn't have an office, uh, per se. Maybe he was better off for it. But it was at a well. And he talked to a woman who someone in Jesus' status would never talk to. And she had been with multiple, multiple men, used and probably discarded, And Jesus talked to her, and he offered her living water. And then in John 8, Jesus stood up and defended a woman who was caught in adultery. In typical double-standard fashion, it's the woman who's going to be stoned. Where, Where in the world was the guy, right? Was he, what, hanging out in the crowd? Did he himself have a stone ready to stone the woman who he had slept with? We don't know. But he certainly wasn't defending her. Jesus did, though. He said to the crowd, he who is without sin cast the first stone. they all walked away. And Jesus says, and I also forgive you. He saved her life that day, but he also offered her a sense of forgiveness that would save her soul. And then Jesus, to to a bunch of religious people, religious rulers, he said this. Now, if you've ever considered yourself a relatively good person, or if you've ever considered yourself someone who has it all together, maybe Jesus was saying this to you too. He says, truly I tell you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God ahead of you. See, the story of Christmas can't be separated from stories like Tamar because it was for people like Tamar that Jesus came to give them hope. That in the midst of darkness, there might be a light. So since the earliest of times, the church has relived the waiting uh, for the Messiah by lighting a candle as a symbol of uh, light that comes in the midst of darkness. And I find it beautiful that traditionally the first candle that was lit in the first Sunday of Advent, represented hope. That when we are in the midst of our most difficult situations, when life seems its darkest, and we can't, we can't help each other. Like, I don't know how to help you. I don't know how to... I'm sitting down with you, but I don't, know, I don't know how to make it better. In the midst of when we don't know what to say or do, there's still hope. That in the midst of the worst of situations, we can still have hope. And that's what the first Advent candle is. And so today, I want to light the advent candle in honor of Tamar, one who's probably spent most of her life without hope, but also for all the Tamars in the world who find themselves in difficult places. We're gonna spend a couple of moments in silent reflection. I have a couple of questions I wanna put on the screen Um, That I want you to wrestle with as we begin to pray and think. Uh, Do I allow the labels of this world to define me? Do I believe I'm worth it? What message does Christ have for me this Christmas? But up here, we have a number of other candles as well. And if you're going through a difficult time, or if you know someone who is, and you want to come forward during this time of reflection and light a candle in their honor, I'm going to invite you to do that. As a prayer, as a a hope that even though this light is so small that it still represents that there's possibilities for good things in their life again. So we're going to spend a couple moments in reflection and if you want to come and light a candle for yourself or for someone who's going through a difficult time, we'll give you time to do that. Will you pray with me? God, we come before you and we thank you. We thank you that you've included people like Tamar in your story because that means there's certainly room for us no matter what we've done or what's been done to us. We ask that you would, in fact, come and speak life into us as we struggle through the Advent, through the, through the waiting of what it means, uh, through the waiting of for you to show up in our lives, and sometimes that waiting seems unbearable. Come, Lord, light a candle. Give us hope. It's your name we pray. Amen. We'll take just a few moments. Use it as you feel led. Um, come and light a candle if you'd like, and we'll close and song together in just a few minutes